You may be seated. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9? I noted in the early service that Galen Musman is teaching a Sunday school class this quarter, just started this quarter, on preparing to die well. And this sermon on living life prepared for death was a perfect intro to that class. So, um, God's providential timing of when the sermons come and when teaching is offered, that's, that's in God's hand. I'm always amazed at how the Lord outlines that better than we could ever do it ourselves. But Ecclesiastes 9, we're, we're turning a bit of a corner in our, our look at the book. The, the preacher is turning a corner and about to go into the final stretch to sum up the matter, to put together what he's been teaching. It has not been a rosy look at the world around us, but I think it fits so well with, as what Galen prayed, the condition of the world around us. The realist that the preacher is here in the book of Ecclesiastes is just what we need to hear if we're going to face realistically a world that's touched by the fall of man into sin, living here under the sun where vanity is. The preacher, for the sixth time now in the book of Ecclesiastes, calls the reader to enjoy life in the midst of all the hardship and difficulty. And this time, there's definitely a heightened sense of urgency. It's an urgent call to enjoy life. And he issues a series of six commands, six imperatives that we'll look at, directing us to enjoy life in the midst of some very grim realities. Ever the realist, the preacher doesn't pull any punches about the depressing certainty of death and the disorienting reality of chance and change that happens all around us. This is life under the sun, which he reinforces using this term, under the sun, six times in these 17 verses, just giving us this picture of what the world is like from the position of under the sun, what life is like because of the fall of man into sin. And we're going to have to learn what is God's perspective from over the sun in order to make sense, in order to live productively in this vain world under the sun. When we gain that over the sun perspective that the gospel brings, that the Word of God graciously gives us, we'll be able to live productively in this fallen world. Would you follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 9? This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. 
for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Go, eat, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife of, with whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your, finds, your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge, wisdom in Sheol, to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have not left us in this world without guidance, that You have given us Your Word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that You haven't sent us down this path without a shepherd, a good shepherd, who watches and cares for us, who loves and gives for us. Lord, we thank You that even in the words that are difficult to hear, the truth helps prepare us. The truth helps shape us. The truth challenges us. Lord, I pray that we would remember Your sovereignty and Your control over all things and rejoice in that. But Lord, we would also be remiss if we forgot about your love and your compassion and your care for us. You are completely sovereign and completely loving towards your children. Lord, I pray that you would teach us today to value what you value, to look at the world through the lens of your word so that we embrace the truth, so that we are prepared for whatever you bring our way. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God to us, your children. Help us by your Spirit today to understand and receive your truth and then to live it out in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you consider the title of the sermon, Living Life Prepared for Death, I want you to ask yourself, are you living life prepared for death? Have you met somebody who lived their life like they were prepared to die. It's an amazing thing when you see it. It was a year ago in September now that my mother-in-law, Janie's mother, Carol, was 
going back and forth to the hospital from the nursing home, pretty serious health problems. And she had suffered some setbacks physically, but she had a realistic picture of her life and her death. She knew it was coming and that any day could really be her last day. And this made her so completely bold about her faith in Christ. She would tell anyone and everyone about Jesus. And there were ups and downs. There were physical and emotional bouts with pain and suffering. But there was also a a deep and abiding joy. She would savor every bite of the dessert that Janie would send over to her. She would sit down with a cup of coffee and have a conversation with somebody who would visit and just enjoy that time that God was giving her. You know, she woke up some mornings disappointed that she didn't go to be with Jesus that night. She would say, oh, I'm here. But then she would move on and she'd progress and she'd go about doing what she could do in that day to enjoy the life that God had given her. But then as she went on with her day, or as time uh, went on, she had a a sudden uh, heart event most likely on the 28th of December last year. She went on hospice, but she was settled and at, at peace, as we could see, for that final week before she went to meet Jesus face to face. You know, none of us know how long we will live. I mean, some of us are miraculously still here when we should have probably died. And it ought to be, in our minds, the certainty of death facing us that drives us to enjoy the life that God gives us. And I think Ecclesiastes 9 is a beautiful, um, realistic exhortation for us to consider death but live life in light of that. Since death is certain and life is unpredictable, we should enjoy life as God approves with its simple pleasures. And that's what we're going to pack out. That's the thesis of this chapter. And it begins with this stark reality made time and time again by the preacher in Ecclesiastes, nobody's going to beat death. Look at verse 1, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. So he's looking at his life. He's looking at everything he's tried in life to find happiness, purpose, and meaning. And he sees how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. And then whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Now, the interpreters differ on what this verse is talking about concerning the, the love and the hate. Is this love and hate to be understood as man's love and hate, or is this to be understood as God's love and hate? Linguistically, it's it's not really clear. But with the context, and and I take this as as really pointing us to what God loves or hate. Uh, Simply put, the, the preacher looks at everything he's done in life, and he's still not sure if God approves or if he disapproves if he hates it or if he loves it. Now, this is a fatal flaw of life under the sun, where we make judgments about whether God loves us or hates us based on our circumstances around us. If things are going well, if things are working out, if I get blessings, then I have this life that 
God must love me. And that's not always true. But we equally misunderstand God if we try to read the circumstances that are bad, that are tough, that are trials and burdens, and say, well, God must hate me. God doesn't love me. You see, that is a flaw under the sun that without God's perspective from over the sun that says, well, those I love, I chasten, and that the wicked do prosper, but there will be judgment in the end. These truths that help to inform this under the sun perspective are what we need so that we have a genuine understanding that our love from God is only based on the merit of Jesus Christ. It's only found in what perfect life Christ lived. It's not in how perfect my life is. We'll see more of that later. But it's not fruitful for us to read into our life's circumstances whether God loves me or not. It just uh, makes us unstable in all of our ways. Uh, One commentator said, no man can judge by their present outward condition whether God loves or hates them. For whom he loves, he chastens, and he permits those who hate him to prosper in the world. So don't base your assurance of God's love on the circumstances of your life. But then he moves on in verse 2 to describe, in the end, no one will be death. He says, it's the same for all since the same event happens. And he includes people on every end of the spectrum, to the righteous, to the wicked, to the good, to the evil, the clean, the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice, the good one, the sinner, the one who swears, and the one who shuns an oath. Everybody will face death. Now, we're going to see that this is an evil, verse 3, all that's done under the sun. Death is not how God originally designed human beings to live. Death was not a part of the original creation for mankind, that God gave him free access to the tree of life upon the condition of the obedience to his command. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, when Pastor Tony gets to chapter 3 of Genesis, we're going to see that Indeed, Adam and Eve died spiritually. They were separated from God, and the the communion, the close communion and fellowship that they once shared was now shattered and gone. And their bodies, physical death, would soon follow suit, that they're spiritually dead, but now physical death is a reality that 100% of humanity will face. And so, that is not the way God designed things to be, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture sees death for what it is. It's an unnatural evil that we have to deal with, that God has dealt with, and He set a plan in motion from Genesis 3 that He would send the seed of the serpent, uh, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He would undo the curse, and He would bring life where death flourished. And because He suffered death and then was raised again to life, we have hope to defeat death. But before that all comes to reality and, and, and clear focus in later parts of Scripture, here in Ecclesiastes, we just realize that death is real, death is certain, it comes to all. 
there's a glimmer of hope then when we get to verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. If you're alive, there's still hope for you. And that, no matter how bad your circumstances, is still good news. Uh, He uses this saying, uh, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, I don't think this translates well into Johnson County dog culture because the life of a dog in Johnson County involves spa treatments and doggy parks and pretty clothes that they get to wear and riding around in SUVs with their tongues hanging out. You know, that's the life of a dog in 2021 Johnson County. But the life of a dog in the ancient Near East 3,000 years ago the dog was a scavenger. The dog was uh, what cleaned up the messes nobody else would clean up. You think, think of like rats or vultures. That's what you could see the life of a dog like. Looking for next scrap after scrap just for survival. The One of the early mission teams to Juarez, Mexico, um, had come across this dog on the work site where they were doing some work for the church that uh, seemed to always be hanging around, but it was in bad shape. It may have been hit by a car. It was diseased. It was always licking its sores, and he got the nickname Fester because of just what it looked like. All right, that's the picture I want you to get of the dog's life. And he says, a living dog is still better than a dead lion. Oh, I love seeing lions in the wild, majestic, proud, the king of the beasts, right? Nothing to be afraid of, powerful, in control of his domain, but he's nothing when he's dead. Nothing after death comes over him. And so for us to picture how valuable it is just to be living, because when you're living, there's hope. And I would say for anyone you know, it may be you, that doesn't have hope of eternal life, there is still hope for that brother or sister, for that friend or neighbor, as long as they're alive, as long as there's breath in their lungs to repent and believe in Christ. So that proverbial saying helps us to understand as bad as life can be, at least you're still alive. So verse 6 goes on to say that their love, their hate, and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. Death is so final that even these three most powerful emotions, that of hate and envy and love, these, these powerful emotions are just snuffed out and finished by the grave. So the description we have in verses 1 to 6 of the reality and of the finality of death, the brevity of life gives us a strong sense of urgency when we're going into verses 7 to 10. The preacher is trying to just really set us up. This is a bad thing. Being dead is final. But how should we live? He gives six commands in these next verses 7 through 10. They're imperatives that we must pay attention to, that we must live out. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
We get the, the explanation. Why is this, why are we be call, being called to do this? God has already approved of what you do. That the simple pleasures of life, the things of this earthly life, are approved by God when they're enjoyed in the proper perspective. If they become ultimate things that you live for and die for, then they're way out of whack. That's not how we ought to live, pursuing worldly pleasures. But the pleasures of this earth that have been given to us, uh, God calls them good. In 1 Timothy 4.4, we read, For everything created by God is good, and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And so, the pleasures of life, the simple life that God puts before us in verse 7 to 10, are for us to enjoy because they flow out of what we were created to do. We were created to worship God. We were created to enjoy Him. We are called to enjoy the giver of all of these good gifts. So, enjoyment and joy is something that we are called to do. And so, when you look at our very first catechism question, it kind of sets the, the tone and derived from these Scriptures that point us to what is our main purpose? What are we here for? If we're going to find real purpose, our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our purpose is to enjoy Him, and that's to go on forever. And so that purpose is seen for us in so many wonderful ways throughout the Bible. Where do we find joy? Where do we find joy? It's in glorifying God. Uh, Thomas Watson wrote a book called The uh, Body of Divinity, and we've gone through that in Sunday school before. It's kind of a commentary on the catechism. And on this first question, he just expands all of the ways in which we can glorify God. I mean, I think he has 18 different ways that we can glorify God in Scripture after Scripture of Scripture, different ways that we can glorify Him. He goes through like four different way, reasons. Why should we glorify God? And then he talks about different spheres in which we should enjoy God in this life and then in the life to come. And you remember as Tony preached about how long this life is versus how long eternity is? We're built, designed, and made to glorify and enjoy God forever, for eternity. Well, Thomas Watson brings out the enjoyment that we have in God through His ordinances, which the Word, sacraments, prayer, it's kind of the ordinary means of God's grace to us that he's emphasizing. He says this, the enjoyment of God in this life It's a great matter to enjoy God's ordinances, but to enjoy God's presence in the ordinances is that which a gracious heart aspires after. When the Spirit revives the heart with comfort, it comes not only with its anointing, but with its seal. It sheds God's love abroad in the heart. Our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, in the Word we hear God's voice. In the sacrament we have His kiss. The heart being warmed and inflamed in a duty is God's answering by fire. Sweet communications of God's Spirit are the first fruits of glory. 
Now Christ has pulled off his veil. He's shown us his smiling face. Now he's led a believer into the banqueting house and giving him the spiced wine of his love to drink. He's touched the heart. He's made it leap for joy. Oh, how sweet it is thus to enjoy God. The godly have in in the ordinances had such divine raptures of joy and soul transfigurations that they've been carried above the world and have despised all the things here below. Does that sound like the frozen chosen? I mean, this guy is as reformed as you can get, but he extols God for the joy that he calls us to have, particularly in our worship service. The Lord's Day ought to be our delight. The Lord's Day ought to be like the pinnacle of our week where we find joy in the presence of God and with His people as we hear His Word, as we experience the sacrament. That ought to be what feeds us in our joy for the rest of the week. But what we sometimes miss is that this spiritualized joy or spiritual life of joy can be in our minds so separated from what we might think of our secular life, our work life, our school life, our recreation life, the silo that we have kind of constructed of our secular life is, is about me and my enjoyment, but church life is about God and, and His glory. Well, we need to do away with that distinction in this, in this way, that God has made you to glorify Him and enjoy Him in everything you do in the simple pleasure. So, the way that you look at eating and drinking, the way that you look at celebrating, the way that you look at marriage, the way that you look at work should be transformed as worshiping beings into joy, okay? And so, when we look at going and eating, and this is a command. He says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. What does that look like? Well, when James 1 Verse 17 says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shifting shadow. We can see that these good gifts, food and drink, are to be enjoyed because they're from God. And we give glory to the giver, and we enjoy the gift in the giver, not just the gift itself. And so, how can you enjoy food and drink? Savor it slowly. I got this bad habit, just gobbling down food. And God's given this food for us to, and drink for us to enjoy. Take it slowly. How about eat together with others as much as possible? You can grow your food. You can harvest your game. You can brew it, prepare it, give God the glory for it as you share it with others. You know, fast food might have its place, a treat for kids. They enjoy it. But we can slow down and have rich, good, healthy food and give glory to God for it. What about let your garments be always white and let not oil be lacking on your head? What's that talking about? That looks like some cult or something where people go around in white. Well, actually, the white clothes would be worn for celebrations, uh, times of party. And the oil you would use to anoint and to, and to smell better when you gathered together with others. So, enjoy times of celebration. When you get together for birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, weddings, 
baby showers, mortgage-burning jubilees, whatever you get together to celebrate, celebrate it with all your heart and enjoy it. Get your party clothes on, get looking all nice and smelling real nice, and have a good time, all to the glory of enjoying God. What about enjoying your spouse? Well, in every sense of the word, enjoy one another. There's no sweeter intimacy and oneness that you can experience in this life than with the one you've given your heart to in marriage. Physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy are the sweet, sweet pleasures that God gives us in the enjoyment of our spouse. Some of you need to get a handle on your bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness Some of the things that the gospel of God's grace answers because He's forgiven us much, we can forgive one another. You know, clear away the weeds in your garden that are disrupting this intimacy that you should have and pursue that for God's glory. He can give you in your marriage such joy. And finally, in verse 10, we see that we should enjoy hard work. Yes, I said we should enjoy hard work. Well, work was not a result of the fall of man into sin. You know that, right? It's going to be covered um, by Pastor Tony and Genesis here that we were given this mandate to care for the garden. As Adam and Eve were placed in this beautiful garden, they were told to tend it, to care for it, to work. The curse is what brought the toil in it and the ground working against them with thorns. But work itself is God's idea and His plan. So, you can find joy and satisfaction in your vocation by fulfilling the calling that God's put on your life. Living as whatever God's called you to work at, to do it with all of your heart to pursue it with your strength. Verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You can enjoy even simple work around the house or in the yard, and it can give you a sense of joy and accomplishment when you work hard. So, Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. It's spiritual. It's worship to work well. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So with this exhortation, these imperatives, these commands to live life and its simple pleasures to its fullest, all to the glory of God and in the enjoyment what God's given you, he then throws you another curve. He, he brings out this other pretty harsh reality in verses 11 and 12. Chance and change, those are the only things that are certain. 11 says, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Again, this is an under-the-sun perspective. We know that God is in control over all things, but, but these realities happen. We think it's going to turn out one way, and we get surprised. It doesn't turn out that way. And it rocks our world sometimes when everything we think makes sense should turn out this way, and boom, it doesn't. I took all the care, all the precautions for my health, and boom, I still got sick. 
or I managed my finances and I, I was as careful as you could be and knowledgeable as you could be, but then the stock market, boom, dropped. Chance, time, change, it happens. And that's a hard reality for us to deal with. Verse 12 says, man does not know his time like a fish that's taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We don't know when things are going to change. We don't know ultimately when the end of our life is going to be. That fish swimming in the water had no clue that that net was cast above him and is coming down. That bird caught in this snare thought it was just getting a bit of food, and then it's caught. And so we ought not to be unaware that these turns of events, these changes, these difficulties come. Strong people, swift people, wise people, we think it's all going to work out when we are just this way, and it doesn't. Uh, God can do whatever He pleases, and when we're surprised by that, when we're unsteadied by that, we're missing what God wants for us in the enjoyment of life. Now, as we hit verses 13 to 17, some expositors will push that off into the next section. But I really see it as a real-life example of, of what the preacher was just preaching. This is his illustration at the end of his teaching. He says, I have seen this example. So this is his illustration of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it. Oh, that sounds a whole lot like he says about the swift, the strong, the wise, the intelligent. Oh, so if somebody is strong, this strong king comes against this weak city, we know what's going to happen. No, you don't. Don't be surprised when things change because... In verse 15, there was found in it a poor, wise man. You know, it's, it's, it's like the complete underdog, this poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. So he proves his case. These turnarounds happen, and don't be surprised by that. But then that was the one. Here's the two punch that comes in. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Ouch. I mean, wisdom. He's a poor man, but boy, he's wise. And there should be a statue for this guy in the middle of this little city with a big statue of this guy, the man who saved our city. But no. No one remembered that poor man. Verse 16, but I say wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Wisdom is still ultimately worth it. Wisdom is still better. Those turnabouts happen, and sometimes they happen for good. Sometimes they happen for bad. But that shouldn't misdirect us from enjoying God, glorifying Him. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of rulers among the fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And there's the warning in it. If we aren't pursuing wisdom, if we aren't uh, looking to um, be quiet and to follow the Lord in, in His leading, then 
we're going to do a lot of harm. But when we give our lives over to wisdom and following God, it goes much better. So let's put this together. We're confronted in the, in the beginning. The preacher makes the solid point, even that our first uh, catechism question does, that our chief end, our, our main purpose, our highest end, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That enjoyment can happen and should happen now in this life. However, we must be mindful of the reality of death and the sorrow and the unnatural death that it is. Nobody beats death, but that reality must not keep us from living the life that God has called us to do, to enjoy the simple pleasures of the simple life. We get rocked again with the reality of change and time and chance, but that shouldn't undo us. That shouldn't deter us from living in wisdom and pursuing God's wisdom because it is ultimately worth it. So, we can have this completely honest assessment, this, this reality check that the preacher gives us under the sun. But we also get some over-the-sun perspectives. We're not sugarcoating it. We're not, we're not making it out rosier than it is. Death stings, and accidents happen, and tragedies are real. But these beams of light shine through the mist under the sun. It dispels spells the vanity that we live in, and it points us that our design, we are made to glorify God. We are built to worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. This is the solid ground. This reality is what we then strive out of to live, to run the race that God sets before us. Christ gave His life to make this possible for us to to be redeemed, to undo the works of the fall, and for us to actually begin enjoying life as God's given. We We live life now to its fullness, and we will live it in eternity where we will be in the ultimate fullness of seeing Christ face to face. This is how we go about living here and now, productively prepared for death. Let's pray together. Lord, Some of us are ill-prepared for what is coming, and we long to be better prepared. Uh, Many of us have uh, watched others go through their um, last days, months, and we have seen Your joy in them. And Lord, we long for that for ourselves, and so we pray that You would give that. Lord, I I pray for those who have been, who've received terminal diagnoses. Or just in talking to some this week, Lord, the reality of death is, is ever before them. And Lord, I pray that their lives, our lives, would be lived productively in face of the reality of death. Lord, we want to do this to glorify you and to enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen.